0: Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. good morning. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to take it and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Last week we began a new sermon series through Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians and we'll be here for some time on into the beginning of next year. And so I want to If you would allow me just briefly to remind you of the occasion, the historical setting that prompted Paul to write this letter to this church. If you remember, we said last week, Paul's relationship to these Thessalonian believers, it actually begins in Acts chapter 16, where Paul and his team are visiting the churches that they had planted during the first missionary journey, and Paul sees a vision of a man from Macedonia beckoning him to come over into the region of Macedonia to preach the gospel. And so Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke as well, they make their way into the region of Macedonia, first journeying to the city of Philippi, and then on to the city of Thessalonica, And there, in Acts chapter 17, Paul and his team, if you remember, they enter into the local Jewish synagogue, and as was their normal practice, they begin to preach the gospel from the Old Testament. Luke tells us, reasoning from the scriptures, proving that Jesus was necessary for him to suffer and to rise again. They're preaching the gospel, they're declaring that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah of Israel, and... As he does for three Sabbath days, the Spirit of God moves in a powerful way in Thessalonica. And many are converted. Some Jews, many pagan Gentiles come to faith in Jesus, and a church is born. Some of the Jews become jealous, and so they incite a riot. They gather a mob, and as a result of this persecution, Paul is forced to flee the city of Thessalonica under the cover of darkness. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you notice there, verse 17, describing this experience, Paul says, but since we were torn away, literally orphaned from you brothers for a short time. So prematurely separated from this church, Paul begins to grow Increasingly concerned about this church, and hearing no news about this church, nor about the effect of persecution is having on this church. Eventually, eventually, he sends Timothy to this church, and to report back about the condition of this church. And Timothy returns with a most favorable report, an encouraging report. There is good news, because this church has survived. And not just survived, in many ways, they're thriving. And Paul, he communicates his relief, he communicates his excitement. Notice in chapter 3, verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith. Verse 7, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. So notice, Paul goes from deeply burdened to overwhelmingly thankful to God. And this letter then, the letter of First Thessalonians, is penned in response to this good news. And following this greeting in verse 1, the rest of chapter 1 now, the rest of this chapter is this deeply heartfelt explosion of thanksgiving to God for this church and the evidences of God's grace and work in them. And so then let's pick up where we left off now last week. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. If you have your place there, would you? If you're able, please stand with me out of honor for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. May God bless the reading in the preaching of his word. You can be seated this morning. Well, after notice, identifying the author of this letter and the recipients of this letter and communicating here his grace-filled, gospel-filled greeting there in verse 1, now, in really verses 2 to 10, we see Paul's thanksgiving. This is very appropriate, the week leading into thanksgiving. We see his thanksgiving. In fact, that's really the theme of this entire chapter. Verse 2, we give thanks to God for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And I told you last week, if you remember, church, that the main verb there in chapter 1 is We give thanks. Everything else in this chapter flows from that. Now, invariably, almost all of Paul's letters, with the exception of Galatians, begin with some form of thanksgiving. But this thanksgiving, expressed here in this letter, it is unique. It's unique because of the sheer amount of space it occupies. The, the, the amount of ink spilled here in this Thanksgiving, in this brief little letter. I mean, Paul, he just keeps going on and on and on with Thanksgiving in chapter 1. We'll see it also in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. That's what he's doing here. And here, I, I think, is a lesson for us about Thanksgiving, about gratitude, about prayer, about how we pray And what is he thankful for? What is he thankful to God for? Well, notice chapter 1. He is thanking God for the evidences of his grace that are observable in the lives of these Thessalonian believers. So based then on Timothy's report back to him about this church, it is evident, Paul says, that God's grace is at work in them. We've heard about it. We saw it when we were with you. We are assured of it, and he is thanking God for it. He's not, listen, he's not congratulating them. No, this is all by divine grace. This is divine grace at work in them. It wasn't primarily them. It wasn't they're doing. Yes, they, they had a part to play. They had a role to play. They were, they were active agents in this, but it was owing ultimately to God's grace at work in them. No, He is the decisive cause. It's not them. And therefore, in verse 2, we give thanks to God. All glory be to God for this. And then, in verses 3 to 10, Paul mentions now four ways four evidences of God's grace at work in them that he's thankful for. Four ways. In other words, Paul says, I see God's grace at work in you, Thessalonians, and I see his grace at work in you in these four ways. And so, beloved, before we turn our attention to our text here in verses just four and five, allow me briefly to mention these four areas that he's thankful for, all of which are observable, all of which are reasons for thanksgiving. And they all start with the letter E, just to make it easy for you to remember. So four ways Paul gives thanks to God for His grace seen at work in them. And by way of application, brothers and sisters, these will be observable evidences in our lives as well. Number one, their effort. Verse three, their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope, their effort. We saw this last week. Second, their election. Verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word or in power, but in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. Their election. Third, their endurance. Look there, verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Their endurance. And then fourth and finally, their example in verses 7 to 10. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So Paul knows beyond a shadow of a doubt this church is alive That God's grace is at work in them because of these four things. And he's given thanks to God. First, notice last week we saw their efforts in verse 3. Meaning God's grace is evident in them. It is observable because they are truly living out their faith. Their faith is alive. Their faith is visible. He's saying it's apparent in your efforts. In what ways? Well, will notice in three ways. Verse three, your works of faith, your labors of love, your steadfastness of hope. So the evidence of God's grace at work in them is being expressed in that their faith in Christ is giving rise to good works, Their love for God is being expressed in love and service of others. And they are remaining steadfast. They are persevering in hope, he says. So these are the evidences of his grace at work in them. And beloved, I told you last week, these are necessary evidences. Meaning if there is real faith, genuine saving faith, these will be present. These are what one commentator calls necessary Christian graces. Calvin calls it a brief definition of true Christianity, these three. So let's be clear, these three graces that we saw last week, they aren't the prerequisite for saving faith, but they are the necessary fruits. They are the evidence of saving faith, and without them, there's no assurance of salvation. And so verse three, that's the first area Paul's giving thanks for. Their efforts here, produced by God's grace at work in them, is giving way to a living faith, a working love, and a steadfast hope. And he's thankful for that. That's the first way. Second way. And here's where we're going to spend our time today. The second way, the second area in which Paul is giving thanks to God for his grace at work in them is seen, verses four and five, in their sovereign election their sovereign election. Verse 4, For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. So this is the ultimate reason for Paul's thanksgiving. Even verse 3 is rooted in this. It's grounded in this. This is the ultimate ground of his gratitude in verse Two, we give thanks to God. Why? Verse 4, because we know God has chosen you. You are the elect. And this was the underlying reason for these evidences of grace, of faith and love and hope being displayed in them in verse 3. So please don't misunderstand, okay? This wasn't the reason God chose them. But it was the evidence. It was the effect of God's choice of them. So much so that their divine election was known. It could be seen. It was observable in them. We know he's chosen you. Now, does that strike anyone else as odd? How is it that Paul can state here that he knew God had chosen these Thessalonian believers? Have you ever asked that? How, how can I know I'm chosen? I've heard that question countless times by many Christians How can I know I'm one of the elect? And usually that question arises more often than not out of a place of worry. A lack of assurance. How can I know that God has chosen me? And in verses 4 and 5, this is the issue that Paul turns to now. The doctrine of sovereign election. John Stott, he comments this. He says, whatever denomination or tradition we may belong to, the doctrine of sovereign election causes us difficulties and questions. Oh, yes, it does. Difficulties and questions. But, Stott goes on to write, To be sure, however, it is a truth which runs throughout the Scripture. And here in verse 4, Paul draws attention to this doctrine of sovereign election. And then, in verse 5, he gives, in verses 6 to 10 really, the reason the evidence, the basis for how he knows that these Thessalonian believers, and by way of application, we can know that we're numbered among the elect. And so, beloved, in our remaining time here this morning, I want to dig in here to this doctrine of God's sovereign election in verses 4 and 5. We are a church that is unashamedly reformed. We are a church that holds to the doctrines of grace and this is a doctrine that many of us know well. This is a doctrine that many of us love dearly, but a doctrine that for some causes, as Stott says, difficulties and questions. And so I think it's important for us to pause here and to consider it yet again, because here's why, of the intended effect this doctrine is meant to have in your life. The intended effect this doctrine should have in your life. Why why does Paul mention it here? And we'll look at this doctrine under three headings. Number one, the ground of sovereign election, verse four. Number two, the evidence of sovereign election, verse five. And then number three, the effect of Sovereign election, and that's where we'll seek to apply it. How do we apply this doctrine? First, the ground of sovereign election, verse 4. Notice verse 4. Look there with me. It begins with that word for or because. If your Bible translation doesn't have the word for, then get a new Bible. No, I'm kidding. It's a participle, knowing. The ESV translates it for we know. Verse 4, that word for there, it's linking us back then to verse 2. We give thanks. This is the ground of his gratitude. So Paul's thankfulness flows here from his assurance that the Thessalonians are elect. They're chosen by God. That's, That's the ultimate reason why his heart is filled with thanksgiving. We know he's chosen you. Now, I can promise you as you read the Bible, one of the things that you are regularly going to bump up against is this two sided, seemingly conflicting truth of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And both are absolutely true. Yes, God is absolutely sovereign in all things, including salvation. And yet we are morally responsible agents. And those aren't mutually exclusive. Those aren't contradictory. In fact, we even see it when we compare. Notice verses 3 and 4. Look there again. Verse 3, which we saw last week. Yes, it is our faith. It is our love. It is our hope. We are actively doing these things. And yet it is ultimately the work of God. That's why he's being thanked for it. It is a sovereign, supernatural working of the Spirit in us. And yet, the Thessalonians were still responsible for these works of faith, labors of love, steadfastness of hope, divine sovereignty, human responsibility. Right there. Or Philippians chapter 2. Notice here, Paul expresses this same idea in verse 12, where he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Who's doing the working? Is it me or is it God? Yes. <laughs> it's both. In his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, J. A. Packer, he tells of a time uh, when our good friend Charles Spurgeon was once asked how he reconciled these two apparent contradictions of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And Spurgeon, Spurgeon said, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. Packer goes on to say, in the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are friends, and they work together. And that's exactly, church, what we see here in verses 4 and 5. All of the evidences of spiritual life at work in these Thessalonian believers and, beloved, in your life as well is ultimately rooted in verse 4 because He chose you. And so before we move on, And because this doctrine poses a lots of difficulties and questions, I want to just show you by way of reminder, some of the things the Bible says about the doctrine of sovereign election. And there's six things I want to say. Verses are going to be up on the screen for you in case you can't flip there fast enough. What does the Bible have to say about the doctrine of sovereign election? Six things. Number one, here it is. Most importantly, it is biblical. Biblical. John Calvin didn't invent this doctrine. And what I mean here is that the terms themselves are in the Bible. They're biblical terms. The verb to choose or to elect, it's found 22 times in the New Testament. Most of those pertaining to salvation and eternal life. Or the noun the elect also, surprisingly, 22 times in the New Testament, 17 of those meaning men and women chosen to eternal life. And then also, of course, you have the sister words of predestined and appointed unto eternal life. And those are used in the context of eternal salvation. So my point simply being this, the words themselves are in the Bible. There's no getting around that. And so How we understand them then is going to be determined by the the, the context in which they're used. That's how we have to wrestle with them. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing I want you to know. God's sovereign election was decreed in eternity past. We saw this a few weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Paul writes, even as he chose us in him... Before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So God's election of you, of me, of every believer was determined, Paul says, in eternity past. So before the world began, prior even to Genesis 1-1, way back in the mind of God, in eternity past, he set his sovereign choice on you. It was decreed in eternity past. Here's the third thing. His choice of you was sovereign and Unconditional meaning it wasn't based on it wasn't conditioned upon something in you foreseen works your foreseen faith your foreseen merit god didn't look down the corridors of time and see that you would choose him see that you would you believe in him and then he chose you no no It was sovereign, meaning it was all his doing. It was all his decision, and it was unconditional, meaning it wasn't based on anything in you. Romans chapter nine, notice here verse 11. Speaking here of God's sovereign individual choice of Jacob and not Esau, Paul says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Meaning what? It was unconditional in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. So that it would be based on God's sovereign, free choice. Verse 12, she, Rebecca, was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So beloved, think back to your own conversion then. Think back that God's choice of you, it wasn't based on something good in you. You you didn't muster up the faith to believe. You, You weren't smarter than the person next to you. No, it wasn't the reason you were chosen or saved. It wasn't based on you, it was based on God's choice of you. It was free. So what was it based on then? Number four. God's sovereign election is rooted in his love. His love. Verse four, look there. For we know, brothers, 1 Thessalonians chapter one. For we know, brothers, loved by God that he has chosen you. So the foundation of his choice of you, what, what is underneath, Paul says, his choice of you is his love for you. That's, listen, that's the only reason, that's the only answer that the Bible gives of why he chose you. Why did God choose you? Because in eternity past, God set his love, he set his affection on you. So you look behind divine election, You see divine affection. Again, John Stott writes, he chose us because he loves us and he loves us because he loves us. He does not love us because we are lovable, but only because he is love and with that mystery, we must rest content. He chose you because he loves you. He wanted you. Oh, friend, feel the weight of that this morning. And this is no doubt true when you consider the holiness of God and the sinfulness of men and what our sin deserves. That God the Father, in His love, He would choose hellbound sinners before the foundation of the world, and that God the Son would willingly die in our place for our sins to purchase us as the elect. Oh, my friends, this is owing only to sovereign love. He loved you. That's why. Number five, God's sovereign election is just. In other words, here's a big struggle for many people. God's election of only some, certain persons to eternal life treats no one unfairly. Meaning no one can say that's not fair. He is always just. Again, Romans 9, verse 14. Paul asks, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now, he's, he's just been talking about election, God's sovereign choice, and here he's posing the hypothetical question neither because his critics are launching it against him or because he anticipates somebody's going to ask it. Is there injustice here? What's his answer? By no means. For, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so then it, meaning election, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Mark Mark Webb, in the Reformation Reformation and Revival Journal, he tells of a story of after after giving a lecture on the topic of sovereign election. election. Listen to what what he says here. here. Quote, After giving a brief survey of these doctrines of sovereign grace, I asked for questions from the class. You can imagine. One lady, in particular, was quite troubled. She said, this is the most awful thing I've ever heard. You make it sound as if God is intentionally turning away men who would be saved, receiving only the elect. I answered her in this vein, you misunderstand the situation entirely. You are visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven and men are thronging to get into the door and God is saying to various ones, yes, you may come, but not you or you or you. The situation is hardly this. Rather, God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. And yet all men, without exception, are running in the opposite direction towards hell as as hard as they can go. And so God, in election, graciously reaches out, and he stops this one, and that one, and this one over here, and that one over there, and effectually draws them to himself by changing their hearts, making them willing to come. Election, he says, keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there but it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who would have otherwise been there. Were it not for election, heaven would be an empty place and hell would be bursting at the seams. God is just and he's merciful. Sixth, finally, God's sovereign election will be evident in our lives. It will be seen. Now, that may sound a bit strange because when we think of divine election, we tend to think of it only in terms of this divine decree residing only in the mind of God, unknowable to us. And in some sense, that's true. We don't don't know for sure who is elect, who's not elect. God, God is the one who sees the heart. We don't see the heart. We can't know infallibly, but... Hear me. Verses 4 and 5, notice back, Paul shows us here that we can know we are elect, that we are chosen, because it will be observable in the lives of the elect. In other words, yes, our election is owing only to the sovereign grace of God, but that election will produce certain fruits, certain evidences in our lives. In fact, notice, that's how verses 4 and 5 connect. Paul tells the Thessalonians here, he's convinced they're chosen. How? How? Because of what he saw, what he observed, what he experienced when he preached the gospel to them. So the observable evidence of their sovereign election. And beloved, it will be the same observable evidence in our lives. Which which is is us to point point number two, two, the evidence of sovereign election. election. Look at verse five. How does Paul know that these Thessalonian believers are numbered among the elect?
1: Why is he so convinced?
0: Verse four, look there. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you. How? Verse five, because our gospel came to you. Not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. In other words, Paul is convinced that God has chosen these brothers and sisters in Thessalonica because of the way the gospel came to them. Verse 5, he and his team... What they saw when they were in Thessalonica preaching the gospel and what they've heard from Timothy's report now, what he saw was clear evidence that they were elect, that they were chosen by God. William Hendrickson comments, this passage, verses 4 and 5, is the most forceful repudiation of the position of those who say that no one can ever really know whether he or whether anybody else is included among the elect. No. Here's the evidence. Here's how you know. What's the evidence? Again, verse 5, look there. He's absolutely certain God had chosen them because the gospel came to them, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. What's the evidence? Verse 5, notice he says, Because the gospel came to you not only in word. Yes, the gospel came in words. But it came with more than just words. No, it came. It was accompanied by the Spirit's power. Please don't miss what Paul says there first in verse 5. The gospel came to you not only in words, meaning it came in words. In fact, it must come in words. You know why? Because the gospel message is a message that must be proclaimed. It's a message with a certain content that can't be altered and it can't be added to and it can't be tampered with in any way. It's a specific message that must be heard and it must be believed. Words matter. And what is the message? It is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is that Christ suffered on Calvary's cross to bear the wrath of God in our place. And by his death, he has made atonement for sin. And he has satisfied God's wrath. He satisfied the law's demands against us. And now he grants righteousness and salvation to all who will believe and who will trust in Jesus Christ alone. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And Paul says, that message, that message, that's what I preached to you. That's what I proclaimed to you when I was with you in Thessalonica. For three Sabbath days, I was reasoning and I was explaining to you the scriptures and I was proving Jesus had to suffer and rise again and proclaiming this gospel to you. My message came to you in words, but it didn't only come in words. Yes, it came in words. This is the general call of the gospel. The, the, the gospel call that goes out to all people everywhere. It is the message that must be heard in order for people to be saved. That there is no other name given among heaven by which we must be saved than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, you heard my message. You heard my gospel. You heard my words. You heard my preaching. It went into your ears. But words alone save nobody. No one. Verse 5. The gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Meaning what? Meaning there was something more going on in my preaching.
1: Something else was going
0: on than just my mere words. No. As Paul preached the gospel, he was aware that his words were accompanied with power power of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God in and through His words, in and through the preaching of the gospel was opening blind eyes to see the glory of Christ in the gospel and causing them to see their own sin, causing them to see their need for Christ and producing in them heartfelt conviction that led to repentance and faith. And Paul and his team, as they observed this, as they witnessed this, they were aware something remarkable, something supernatural was taking place. And this was the only explanation for the conversions that happened in Thessalonica and the birth of this church. It was all the result of the power of the Holy Spirit working through the preaching of the gospel. This wasn't a mere general call. Like I'm doing right now. No, this was the effectual call. It, it, it wasn't the voice of the preacher, it was the voice of God Himself calling them powerfully, effectually, irresistibly to faith in Jesus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, notice there. Verse 13, Paul's going to make reference to this work of God and the response of the Thessalonians again later in his letter. Chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, our words, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Oh, yes, they heard the words of Paul. Beloved, they heard the voice of God himself calling them. And this was only owing to the power of the Holy Spirit
1: that accompanied the preaching of the gospel according to the sovereign
0: grace. And my friends... This explains why the Word can be faithfully preached week in and week out, and it will lead one man to tears and another to be totally indifferent. This is how the gospel can be proclaimed, and for some it creates joy and awe and faith And worship in a heart, and the other is completely left unaffected by it, bored. Because the word must be accompanied by supernatural power. This is why you can share the gospel with that family member, that friend, that co-worker for years and years and years and years, and there's just this glazed over look. And then one day, the lights come on. And verse 5, Paul says, these words alone, they are insufficient to transform the heart that's dead in sin. And unresponsive to God, no, only the power of the Holy Spirit penetrating and transforming the heart, granting the miracle of new birth through the proclamation of the gospel, resulting in repentance of faith. It's only the power of the Holy Spirit. You see a beautiful example of this in
1: Acts chapter 16. Notice here, Paul's preaching in the city
0: of Philippi just prior to arriving in Thessalonica. Acts 16, and we meet a woman named Lydia. She's listening to Paul as he preaches. Acts 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia. Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. She was a devout Jew. So she's listening to Paul as he preaches. She hears the general call. And Luke tells us, notice next, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. What's that? That's the effectual call of God. By the power of the Holy Spirit drawing her sovereignly to faith. And beloved, this was your experience. This was my experience. There was a moment in your life prior to your conversion where you were blind to the truth. You were hard and dead in sin. and. The gospel came to you not only in word, but it came to you in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. And God, in his sovereign mercy, opened your heart and your mind to see the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, this is evidence of your sovereign election. How can you know you're elect?" By this effectual call and the transforming power of the gospel. That's the only explanation for why you're a Christian. And this is owing only to God. And it's the evidence of his sovereign election. And then in verse 5, notice he concludes by reminding them that they know exactly what kind of men Paul and his team were. Look at verse 5. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. In other words, the conduct of Paul and Silas and Timothy in no way contradicted this powerful proclamation of the gospel. And Paul, he's going to pick up this idea later in chapter 2. But before we leave this doctrine of sovereign election, I just want to close here by asking this question what effect is this meant to have on me? What should be the effect of the doctrine of election? Third, the effect. And really what I'm asking here is, how do I apply this? I was really struck this week by a line, a single statement in Stott's commentary on verses 4 and 5. Here's what he says. The, to- the topic of election is always introduced in the Bible for a practical purpose. The doctrine of election is introduced in the Bible, Stott says, for a practical purpose. In other words, the doctrine of election is meant, it is intended by God to be very practical. We don't often think about it that way, do we? Being a practical doctrine? Because if we're honest, (laughs) that's not the way this doctrine often functions in the Christian life. is it? Is it? For some, this doctrine is just the stuff of ivory tower theological discussion with very little bearing on my life. Let's just leave that to the theology nerds. Or, it's bothersome to think about God's choice of some and not others, and so I'm just not going to think about it at all. Or, it leads to all kinds of debates and arguments among believers. You've seen that? And therefore, undermining church the practical effect it's meant to have and so what is the practical purpose of this doctrine in my life how does God intend for this doctrine to function in my life he didn't have to tell me this why did he tell it to me well we can think of numerous ways the doctrine is mentioned in the bible and by looking at the contexts of that observe the practical purpose it's given mentioned there and we would discover it's meant to do several things number one it's meant to humble us it should create humility first corinthians chapter one paul says the reason god set it up this way is so that no human being might boast in his presence it creates humility there is no self-congratulation here there is no pats on the back here no Why would God choose me? Humbles us, kills pride. That's one reason. A second reason is it creates thanksgiving. It creates gratefulness. That's what Paul's doing here, right? In verses four and five. That is all his doing. Beloved, it should stir our hearts toward gratitude that God would in love set his affection on us. So listen to me. When you gather around that dinner table this week, when you when you gather around the Thanksgiving table and you begin to share what it is that you are thankful for, what should leap from your mouth is he chose me. He chose me. A third reason, another practical reason is this doctrine of election fuels missions. Verses 4 and 5 are a missions text. How's that? Because in order for the gospel to come in the saving power of the Holy Spirit, it has to first come in words. And how can they hear unless they're sent? So the doctrine of election far, far from making evangelism and missions unnecessary, it makes it indispensable because it is through the preaching of the gospel that the secret purposes of God become known. Yes, so these are all very practical ways that you can apply the doctrine of election. But my question was this week why here? Like, why right here? Why does he mention it in verses four and five? What's the practical effect he intends for this doctrine to have? on the lives of the Thessalonian believers and in our life as well. We'll look there, verses four and five. Why does he want these Thessalonian believers to know they're loved and chosen by God? Here's why. In order to comfort them in the midst of persecution and affliction. That's why. Paul's reason in telling them this, reminding them they're chosen by God, is to provide them sweet assurance and not theological controversy. And so he reminds them that they were chosen by God because they were loved by God from eternity past. This is meant to be a source of immeasurable comfort for them. And it should be beloved for each and every Christian here this morning. So listen to me. If this doctrine, if this doctrine doesn't have this comforting, assuring effect on your heart and your life, it isn't functioning in your life the way the Bible, the way that God intends it to. And so if you are converted, here's why. Because in eternity past, God the Father set his affection on you. And he chose you in Christ. And you were chosen by God because you were and you are loved by God. And if it's based on the fact that he loved you, then the answer to why God would love you or to continue to love you doesn't come from you. It's because he loves you. And that's meant to provide you rock-solid assurance and perseverance in the face of affliction. Let's pray. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard for more information about our church visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706 and thank you for listening